0: This is Richard Pothig, and we continue the autobiography with Chapter 9, Facing a World at War. When I graduated from PS 190 in 1936, I was recommended for the Rapid Advanced Placement Program at the Junior High School of 30. Junior High School 30 was located in Yorkville on 87th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. In the rapid advanced program, the 7th and 8th grades of junior high were combined into one year. The junior high thus became a two-year stint, which included the first year of high school. My father had attended junior high 30 in the early 1900s, but dropped out before high school to go to work. Many young people went to work from junior high school in those years. In my day, junior high was preparation for high school, The big decision in junior high was which high school you would attend. High school should be the determining factor in the course your life took. All of us in junior high had great aspirations for the high schools we wanted to attend. The best New York high schools in the 1930s were Brooklyn Tech, Townsend Harris High, Bronx High School of Science, and Stuyvesant High in Lower Manhattan. My hope was to enter Stuyvesant. I knew I had neither the technical bent nor a strong leaning toward the arts. My initial thinking was to prepare myself for college. I knew my father would resist my continuing on into college. Nevertheless, I planned to take the exam for Stuyvesant, which was located on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, even though the thought of taking the exam for Stuyvesant was unnerving. Stuyvesant was the most sought-after high school in the boroughs, especially in the Bronx and in Manhattan. The brightest students from the junior high schools of New York competed for entrance into Stuyvesant. In New York City, this meant the student population competing for Stuyvesant would be 70-80% to 80% Jewish. The day I went down for the exam, the high school term was packed with students from the five boroughs of New York. The school administration had set up alternative seating in the hall, so there would be space between students. Even though these were considered good students, the school authorities were taking no chances. One look at the exam and I froze. The largest part of the exam was in the area of mathematics and the sciences. The very process of calculating and guessing wore me down. I finished the exam and left the auditorium exhausted. I did not make it into Syverson. My first choice among the New York high schools was the High School of Commerce. Commerce was in the 60s in Hell's Kitchen on the West Side. In the 1930s, most New York high schools were either for girls or boys. I remember only one coeducational high school, DeWitt Clinton. I entered commerce in February 1938 with the rumblings of a major European war on the horizon. The unsettled European situation and its impact on the United States was at the center of attention during my high school years. We kept our ear to the radio and our eyes on the news headlines. We all sensed that our high school years might be a prelude to the army. My three years in high school were just a matter of getting through. There was not the same competition at Commerce as there was at Stuyvesant. A large number of the students were black. I finished in the top 10% of the graduating class. My grade point average was in the 80s, which meant I could matriculate to the city of the College of New York without expense. But at 16, I was not ready to continue my education. The clearest picture I have of my high school days was the two-mile round-trip walk I made from Yorkville to the west side every morning and afternoon. Five of us made the daily trek. Johnny Palazzotto lived on 85th Street and York Avenue. He rang my buzzer at 1582 First Avenue at 720 every morning. We had the walk estimated to be just over a half hour. Without any delays, we would get to Commerce just before 8 a.m. From 1st Avenue to Central Park was our slowest going. Then we had a clear stretch without traffic lights cutting across Central Park from 79th Street on the 5th Avenue to 67th Street on Central Park West. Johnny and I would pick up Jack Saita at the corner of 81st Street and 1st Avenue. By the time we reached Second Avenue and eighty first street, we would meet Saul Mines and Hank Yost. They both lived on eighty fourth Street between First and Second Avenues. There was a continuing stream of banter about school and schoolmates and teachers, or about baseball in the spring and the fall, or about current happenings or about girls. Once in a while there was a good natured joke about religion. Saul Mines who was Jewish and I were the minorities. Jack, Johnny, Hank, were Roman Catholics. We would continue our fast-paced walk across 79th Street to Central Park. It was early enough in the morning that the park was empty. On occasions, we would run into a punch-drunk prize fighter jogging down the path, throwing punches wildly in the air at some imaginary opponent. we crossed Central Park on a diagonal from 79th Street on the east side to 67th Street on the west side. We came out at the park at the Tavern on the Green, which fronted on Central Park West. Then we walked across to Amsterdam Avenue and 66th Street to the High School of Commerce. If we were pressing 8 a.m., we would sprint the last block or two. We made this trek every day during our high school years. Only in heavy rains did we take the bus. Snow did not slow us down. We started out earlier on snowy days. On days when one or two of us were late, we kept on going. There was a prize at the end of high school for those who had been punctual all their high school years. My friends urged me on, knowing that I had never been late in our three years at Commerce High. They were angling for a party or a split of the prize money, if I could make it through. In the last month of high school, we faltered one morning. We made the mad dash down 66th Street only to come in under the wire five minutes late. So near and yet so far. Nevertheless, we were a sturdy crew. Our daily four-mile round-trip walk kept me in shape in my teen years. It strengthened my heart for playing ball on 83rd Street all those years. If I had any indication in high school of a particular strength, it was history. One of the few teachers I remember was Mr. Birnbaum, the European history teacher. I enjoyed my history classes, especially European history, which we were living out every moment between 1939 and 1942. Reflecting on my time at Commerce, it was as if my three years in high school were a live history course. We ended the course in one dramatic hour on Monday morning in December. Senators and Representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. On December 8, 1941, the entire high school was called to an assembly in the auditorium. We were to hear a speech by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. All the teachers and the principal were gathered on the stage. The principal call for quiet as the loudspeaker was turned on. We sat stoically without stirring. The voice of the president suddenly broke the silence. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, his words sent a tremor through the whole auditorium. A date which will live in infamy. This day will go down in infamy. I continued by telling of the attack on Pearl Harbor and ended with a declaration of war against Japan. I was to graduate the next month. On the first day of February of 1942, I stepped out of Commerce High into World at War. I was 16 and not eligible for the military draft. The talk on 83rd Street was, what do we do now? Most of us were under draft age and still in high school. Among my friends, I was the first one to finish high school. Should we wait till we get drafted or enlist early was the question. We calculated that early enlistment would give us a choice of the military service we would enter and even a shot at officers training if we qualified. I was in no rush but I did give a thought to enlisting when I reached 17 in July. Jerry Pospisle, my friend at Madison Avenue Church, was a more sober-minded patriot. He told me straight, Enlist? You must be out of your mind. (laughs) Don't do anything until your draft age. Your time will come soon enough. My other goal upon graduation was to matriculate at City College. I had high enough grades to enter City College tuition-free. At that moment in nineteen forty two my father's plant in Long Island City, Sunshine Biscuits, went out on strike. The company shut down and our family was without income. I immediately went to the vocational council at the High School of Commerce and was sent to Beston Company on Fifth Avenue for an interview. In February, nineteen forty two, I was hired at Beston Company at Fifth Avenue and Thirty fourth Street. It was a stock boy's position in men's clothing at $18 a week. It was another world for me. Wealthy customers in high fashion went together at Best & Company. Best was one of the most exclusive Fifth Avenue department stores. It had branch outlets in all the other more fashionable suburbs in the nation. I shipped men's suits to Brookline, Gross Point, Bryn Evanston, and all the other fancy suburbs in the East and Midwest. The summer, I had tired of stock work. I went to Carl Dietz, the head buyer in the men's department, and asked to be a salesman. I took him by surprise. He still saw me as a recent high school graduate and a young one at that. By the fall, I was moved into sales position in men's accessories. At 17, I was one of Best's youngest sales clerks. We worked on a commission. Besides our weekly salary, we had a twenty five per cent discount on best merchandise. At the age of seventeen, I owned a blue Harris tweed suit, which I bought on sale, together with all the other proper accessories. After Christmas of nineteen forty two, the attraction of selling wore off when I was offered a job working for Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians. Helen Helwig, Fred Waring's secretary, was a friend of my mother. My mother had been close to the Hellwig family. Among my trips with my mother, we paid semi-annual visits, once in the summer and once during Christmas holidays, to the Helwigs' home in Pelham. Helen and her married sister, Emily Havner, lived in Pelham with their mother. The elder Mrs. Helwig had been a friend of my grandmother, Alvine Seifert-Schozo. They were from the same town in Germany, Bremen-Vegasach. Helen Hedwig called and asked whether I would like to work for the Pennsylvanians. She knew my tenure with the Pennsylvanians might be short. I would be turning 18 in July 1943 and would be eligible for the draft. I thought working for Fred Waring would be an exciting venture. If I decided to go into entertainment business, this was the first rung on the ladder. Working for the Pennsylvanians with the possibility of returning to work on Broadway after the war attracted me. I'm young and healthy, and you've got charms. It would really be a sin not to have you in my arms. I'm young and healthy, and so are you. When the moon is in the sky, tell me what am I to I went to work at Words and Music in the shipping department, which was a two-person staff. Bernie Fisher and I were the department, wearing held title to a wide range of choral music as well as a growing number of patriotic war songs, whose sheet music were hot items. We had laughs over the music people sent in to wearing for consideration. One came in with the title, Send Your Son in the Army a Big Fat Salami. That one never made it to Broadway. <laughs> Fred Waring was an entrepreneur extraordinaire. He had patents on the Waring Blender, one of the earliest food mixers, and the Waring Aluron, an early steam iron. He also employed an engineer salesman, Len Reed, who was working on the rights for a rotary engine, and an elderly inventor mechanic named Willie, who repaired the Waring appliances. These enterprises, beside the Pennsylvanians, were housed at 1697 Broadway at the corner of 53rd and Broadway. Waring had access to office space on three floors. His main offices comprised the whole 11th floor. Working for Fred Waring was like being in a large family. There never seemed to be a hierarchy, except that Fred was the head man. His brother-in-law, Lee, ran the front office. In the music business, nobody seemed to pull rank, except you did know where the power was. There were all kinds of characters floating in and out of the offices, members of the orchestra, members of the choral group, soloists, entertainers, promoters, song pluggers, arrangers, composers, relatives of the Pennsylvanians, an array of people related to Waring's appliance enterprise. Waring not only housed his Pennsylvanians on the 11th floor with their rehearsals, for the regular 7pm WR radio program, but he also gave space to the collegiate chorale with its director Robert Shaw. Bob Shaw was just beginning his career as a choral conductor. He had already made an impact on the choral music with his distinctive style for training in choral singing. He emphasized clear phonetic enunciation and producing choral music. Shaw would have the collegiate chorale repeat over and over any portion of music he felt they were not performing according to his sensitive ear. The chorale practiced on the 11th floor in the same space Waring used to rehearse the Pennsylvanians. Since most of the collegiate chorale worked at other jobs during the day, they had to work their schedule in between the times Waring rehearsed Pennsylvanians. The benefit to Waring was that the best voices in the corral went on to sing in the Pennsylvania chorus. The Pennsylvanians were housed in the back section of the eleventh floor. The publishing and shipping offices were up in front. The elevators opened into a reception area, and our shipping offices were immediately behind the reception. The eleventh floor was a little world of music. Fred Waring had his office in the back portion of the floor. His office led directly into a large rehearsal room with its engineering booth. The Pennsylvanians cut their own records. The rehearsal room was also used by the Collegiate corral. The back space also held the practice rooms for the Waring soloists, Donna Day, Daisy Bernier, and Elizabeth Boland. Waring's composer, Roy Ringwald, and his chief music arrangers, Harry Simeon and Holly Aids, had their practice rooms in the back part of the 11th floor. The back section of the eleventh floor was an experience in cacophony, especially on the days when the Pennsylvanians were rehearsing. Simon and aides would be working on their arrangements in separate rooms. One or more of the solos would be practicing in other rooms, and the Pennsylvanians and mass would be running through the music for the evening broadcast. A sturdy door separated the rehearsal area from the front offices. This was to keep the cacophony of the back from disturbing the serious business of making money up in front. The front offices housed the administration of the Waring Enterprises. This included both the Words and Music, corral arrangements, publishing house, and the Waring Appliances. This was my realm. I worked with Bernie Fisher, who was in charge of the shipping department of Words and Music. Bernie was a short black-haired, and droll character who resembled Eddie Cantor. Bernie had aspirations to achieve success in the music business and cultivated friendships among the owners of some of the larger music publishing houses in New York. In the Words and Music section of the offices, there was a stockroom of choral and sheep music. Waring was just beginning to publish the SSA, soprano, soprano, alto, and SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, arrangements of the choral pieces which the Pennsylvania Chorus had made famous. During my two years with Waring, the choral arrangements doubled in number, from a dozen to over 24 arrangements. After I left Words of Music, it changed its name to Shawnee Press, and was to become a major producer of choral music in the United States. In the front offices, we were continually entertained by the wild stories of Bill Hanson and Clarence Kelly, salesmen and promoters of words and music arrangements. Bill and Clarence resembled a Broadway act. Bill was a bear of a man, six foot three two hundred and fifty pounds, and Clarence was toothpicked next to Bill, five foot one hundred and twenty five pounds, soaking wet. When they were both in town, they brought hilarity and high drama to our offices. Bill Hansen was often on the road selling the new wearing choral arrangements to the music wholesale retail houses in the major urban centers. Carl Fisher in Chicago was one of Hansen's regular haunts. Wherever there were music wholesalers, Bill was selling the arrangements of words and music. Clarence was the night owl. His work schedule made him look the part. He began his work day at 8 in the evening and ended when Broadway was shutting down just before dawn. He made the rounds of the nightclubs, the radio stations, the theaters. Clarence's job was to sell the popular song arrangements to which words and music held the rights. Clarence traded on how many singers, entertainers, disc jockeys, and agents he counted among his friends. In the parlance of show business, Clarence and Bill were known as song pluggers. Their job was to get words and music arrangements on the air, in the nightclubs, in the theaters, into the listening range of the U.S. public. They had to convince the singers, their promoters, the agents of the singers, the disc jockeys, that this was good music, music that would make them famous. At the end of each week, a regular listing was published by ASCAP, the Artists, Composers, and Music Performers Union totaling the number of times particular songs were sung, by whom, and on what radio station. Keeping songs before the public was what soul sheet music. Along with this lifestyle went many bizarre stories about the celebrities on Broadway and in the other night spots of New York. And we heard them all. Actually, celebrities were all around us. The singers in Waring's band all considered themselves to be specially talented people. You quickly learn to sort out the real people from those who thought highly of themselves. There was, in fact, deep jealousy between some of the performers for the attention of Fred Waring, particularly among the soloists. As an entertainer, Waring saw his role to provide special shows for those in the armed services bound for overseas assignment. Every Wednesday night, after the W.R. radio broadcast, all the Pennsylvanians, the orchestra, the singers, the office staff, were pressed into service. We were assigned to help with a sloppy Joe supper, which Waring provided for the military personnel. The weekly event was held on the 12th floor of 1697 Broadway. Most of the twelfth floor consisted of a large room with a kitchen. Along with the supper, Waring provided entertainment. The entertainment was a series of performers that spanned the spectrum of Broadway talent: stand-up comedians, ventriloquists, a Punch and Judy act, and a selection of Waring, the Waring entourage. I threw in my lot whenever I was needed to serve food, to clean up, to eat with the military personnel. Another side of the many talented Waring was his fascination with appliances. Fred was known as an inventor. He held the patents on two well-known household items, the Waring Blender and the Waring Alderaan. On the 10th floor of the 1697 building, Waring rented space to services appliances. Here one found another one of the family, an old Austrian named Willy, who was also an inventor. I enjoyed my visits with Willie on the 10th floor. He was an amiable figure in his leather apron, intensely engaged in fixing a wearing blender or algeron, which had gone out of commission. Sometimes I would run into a long and lanky Len Reed, who also worked out of a 10th floor office. Len was always busy tracking down other technical enterprises in which wearing might invest. While I was with wearing, Len was investigating a rotary engine being developed in England. He came back all excited about the prospects. Reflecting back on the multifaceted scene with Waring Enterprises, it was a learning experience in how business gets done and how to be entertained along the way. Life with Waring was never dull. It was an invaluable introduction into the world of entertainers and entertainment. But it was not my line. In July 1943, I turned 18. It was my turn to submit myself for the draft. I was called up for a physical, which was preliminary to induction into the armed forces. In New York City, the physical exam was carried out at 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue, the Grand Central Station. The area was not the station itself, but a huge hall with high ceilings, which was adjacent to the station. The hall was divided into stalls, each separated by a canvas partition. Young men from all over the city stood in line as they entered the hall for their physical examination. bones going rise again Their draft notice was inspected. Them bones going rise again. They were given a physical exam record, Them rise again. and pointed to one of the stalls to begin the process of the examination. Now, hear the word of the Lord. Each stall specialized in a different part of the anatomy or the psyche. Each doctor would do his thing write something unintelligible on your physical record exam and send you on to the next stall. In one stall, the doctor was only interested in asking questions. He began asking about my interest. What do you like? Do you like baseball? How about basketball? Do you like football? Do you have any friends? Sure, I have friends, was my immediate response. Do you have any boyfriends? Sure, I have boyfriends. I asked somewhat annoyed, do you like boys? What do you mean do I like boys? I mean do you find them attractive? I was finally getting the drift of the examination. No, I find girls more attractive. That ended the part, the part the of my the exam. Bone, the shoulder bone the shoulder bone the As I looked out over my exam sheet, there was no telling from what the doctors had written, whether I was healthy or whether I was ready to fall apart. Not until I got to the eye doctor that I sensed there was any question. The doctor asked me how long I had worn glasses. Since I was young, maybe seven or eight years. He shined a light beam, a bright beam into my eyes. He had me read the chart at the end of the petition without my glasses. Read the third line down. What third line? The letters had blurred together. He asked me further questions and scratched something onto my exam sheet. It was in red. The examinations finally came to an end. The process finished abruptly with the prospective draftee facing a large set of doors which entered out onto Lexington Avenue, the Lexington Avenue side of the Grand Central Station. On the other side of the doors, in an ante room, on a small table, sat a very, very heavy sergeant surrounding the table. On the table was an ink pad and two rubber stamps. With a scowl, the sergeant looked over my exam record, scanning the marks on the exam and picking up one of the red stamps in front of him. With a great sense of power, the power over life or death, he brought down the stamp on the exam. He handed me back the exam with a quick look before he took it back. Across the front, in bold, black letters, it read, REJECTED. What do you mean, rejected? For what? I asked. You can't see, that's for what? The sergeant shouted back. Hey, buddy, came a voice from behind me. You ought to be happy. You won't be dead meat in Europe. Yeah, I'll trade places with you, said another voice in front of me, someone who had just been drafted. I walked down on Lexington Avenue with mixed emotions. My first feeling was a disappointment to be 4F. The draft category of a person who did not fulfill the physical or mental requirements to serve in the armed forces was a stigma. Even though there were people really... Not physically able to serve, I did not think my eyesight was poor enough to disqualify me from the draft. I suspected that my eyesight might be a problem, since the only red mark on the sheet was at the eye exam. The sergeant's cryptic mark had confirmed my suspicion. I also felt a little ashamed to show up the wearing offices the next day with the word that I had been rejected. My friend Jerry Pospisil soon set me straight. You should be damned thankful that you don't have to get your head shot off in this war. Jerry was not unpatriotic, just a realist. He was drafted into the army and fought as an infantryman in the European campaign. The folks at Waring were sympathetic and happy that I would continue at the office. Rejection for the draft set in motion more serious considerations about where I was heading. I knew that I would never get far without a college education. In the next year, this thought was central in my mind as I looked to the future.